Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest, both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Well, we're glad you're here today. We're uh, continuing our series. This is the fourth part of our series of Outside Influence, and we're studying the book of Daniel, asking this question primarily. How do we live fully engaged in life, in a world, in relationships around us, in a winsome, positively influential way when we're in difficult settings and our world continues to polarize even more uh, in relationship and ideas towards each other. And it's really a, a series about how we have God-empowered long-term impact, one person at a time, especially in those difficult relationships with a boss or a colleague or a family member or something where you are frustrated, where you face difficulty, where it seems like they put roadblocks up in front of you or, 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 or unfair treatment happens. And, and, and how do we live in those relationships, not from a position of weakness where we, all of us probably fall prey to, uh, we, we fall prey to the idea we're trying to complain and frustrated and we want to usually get out and we want to change something and we, we find ourselves falling into that. And instead, we want to learn to be facing those situations from the strength focus, this idea of living in God's peace, His joy, His power, His influence, even in the most difficult circumstances to find that sense of peace and joy. The first three messages really hit that really, really head on from a, in a strong way. We're going to continue to, to talk about that theme throughout the rest of the three messages in, the, in this series. But the next two weeks in particular, we're going to focus uh, a little bit differently. We're going to switch the focus from Daniel, and we're going to actually look at two of the kings in the book of Daniel and learn some lessons from them and from the Bible and how it relates to that. So today, we could summarize the focus as simply this. We're going to deal with the greatest long-term danger to being impactful in our faith and our life as a people, as a business, as a church, and that danger is success. In my life, I don't know about your life, but uh, looking back on my life, when I've had bigger success, it's been harder for me to stay in a good relationship with God and make really, really deep impact in people's lives. And this is a really timely message for us as a church, not just because we live in an affluent community where success is embodied by most of you and most of our community. We also are in a place where our church has been lately experiencing uh, more vivid, more regular, more frequent divine encounters with God. God is up to something. I mean, we believe that doctors bring healing. We pray for people, and, and, and we've seen people healed through, through doctors in a way where the, they would say prayer was a part of that as well. But we've also seen healings recently apart from that uh, happening more frequently. And we've had a lot of you uh, being prayed for on Sundays or praying in your small groups or throughout the week encountering God in ways as you pray where you sense his presence, you sense him speaking to you, and, 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 and it makes a difference. And you know it's him. We've had more people being baptized this year, making faith decisions, and, and uh, we've had a higher visitor traffic, and our attendance has been tracking higher than last year and going higher. God is doing something and he's continuing to draw people. And the question is, how will we deal with success when God brings it? 
In addition to this, God is blessing many of you with success in your work. And how will you deal with the success God is bringing you in your work in a way that does not undermine God's best for you? If you're a student of history like I am and, and, and like many of you are, I know every great successful faith movement, every great church, every great successful business, every great nation throughout history that has had great success has either died or not done well and had to be taken over and turned around by someone else eventually because of the power of success. How do we deal with it differently is the question. And God desires to bless us. He wants to bless us. He wants us to have long-lasting, deep, positive influence in people's lives. Today we're going to look at the primary text is Daniel 4. And uh, you'll notice as we get into this text that Daniel's actually not the writer of a good portion of this chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar is. In fact, it starts out this way. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. See, the book of Daniel and the events of this time are this glimpse into the sad end of an all-too-consistent cycle among humanity, among people and among nations who become prosperous and successful. Israel goes from one person called by God to this prosperous empire like God said they would be, and they're just doing great. And then, and then Daniel is this picture of, of, of judgment, of judgment of the kind where God is letting them experiencing the full pain of their sin because for centuries they would not turn around and deal with things better. And so, but it's also this picture of redemption where God is redeeming Israel because of them not stewarding success well. I mean, think about it. How do they go from this, this blessed, amazingly, divinely empowered nation who has experienced in their history miracles that are so uncommonly big that we still remember them 4,000, 5,000 years later from being the, the parting of the Red Sea to the, the water out of the rock in the desert to the, 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 uh, the plagues in Egypt and all these things they experienced. And, and yet they go from that kind of an encounter and that kind of success to being a rebellious, hard-hearted people. So if you study the later years of Israel before this happens, you realize that there, there are people who are now, some of them are actually beginning to sacrifice kids to wooden idols. And that some of them, are, their families are broken, and you see a, a widespread rebuke in, in Malachi even of, of violent abuse. Malachi comes after this in time period, but there was this violent abuse in their marriages going on. And, a, and a, there was abuse by religious leaders and abuse by political leaders, and the list could go on for them. And see, Nebuchadnezzar is the same picture. God created him for rulership and allowed him to become the emperor, one of the greatest emperors of all time. And out of that success in this chapter, we see him actually fall into the depths of true insanity because he does not handle God-given success well. But God restores him 
And at the end of his life, he writes this memoir, which we started to read a portion of just now. And after giving praise to God, he gets into the story and says, here's the story. I was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. In other words, I had everything I'd always wanted to achieve, greater than I had ever dreamed of. And think about it. How many people can afford to build the hanging gardens? How many people can afford to build a 56-mile wall around their uh, royal city that is so wide they can, they can race chariots on the top of it? And that wall was, was beautifully stained blue around most of it. And there were many great works of art, some of which were listed as the seven, uh, one of the seven wonders of the world in this wall. And don't forget, he just built a 90-foot golden statue just because he wanted to. I mean, this is a guy who has done everything. And what's clear in the context of this passage and in these words is that contented and prosperous meant self-sufficient. He had it all under control. He knew what needed to be done. It was all up to him. There's no reliance on God. Now, don't he, he acknowledges God. In fact, he even acknowledges Daniel's God, the one true God, as being real. But there's even in that acknowledgement, there's no reliance on God. And the text goes on from where we finished reading to describe again the dream I talked about a little bit last week, which is this dream Nebuchadnezzar had where it was a great tree and it was chopped down. And the interpretation of the dream is that God is going to humble him, that he's going to go essentially insane for seven years until he humbles himself before God and then God will restore him. And Nebuchadnezzar hears that dream and the interpretation and recognizes it's from God, and yet he still doesn't humble himself. He doesn't respond to the dream. And then Daniel picks up in the middle of the chapter around verse 29, describing the breaking point at which Nebuchadnezzar goes insane. And here's what it says. It says, 12 months later, meaning 12 months after he'd had this dream, As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And even as the words were on his lips, a voice came down from heven. This is what is decreed. This is, this is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately, What had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from the people, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with the dews of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. That's really attractive, isn't it? That's what we all want, right, to have our nails that long. He goes certifiably insane. In fact, what's really interesting about this, if you ever question this, archaeologists in a dig of the old city of Babylon found evidence that supports the fact that he did have this seven years of insanity in his life. It's actually in the British Museum, and it's a a document. This is just another proof that you can trust the history of the Bible, and you can trust the Bible as reliable. Verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. And then skipping down to verse 37, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, 
When we succumb to the power of success, we live as self-sufficient instead of God-dependent. And that's really the lesson that he's teaching us here. And it leads to insanity. Now, maybe we don't become as insane as Nebuchadnezzar eating like an ox, but Nebuchadnezzar's insanity started long before he started eating grass like an ox. He, like us, decided that he was so successful and smart and good that he could define what was right and good instead of God. And so he started, just like us, we start doing what pleases us because we've earned it. We've earned it. We are successful. We are strong enough. We are smart enough. We know better than what God tells us in the Bible and reveals by His Holy Spirit. We can rationalize away the dreams and the warnings and the Bible verses that God gives us because we know better. And see, even though we acknowledge God and maybe even go to church on a regular basis, the reality is we live self-sufficient lives. And the only times we really ever turn to God is when when things are not going well, when our marriage is in trouble or when our parenting isn't going well or when we're facing potential failure or loneliness hits us or we hit the bottom of, uh, of addiction or we get sick or something terrible happens and we begin to question then, where is God? And see... We may, we may believe God is real the whole time, just like Nebuchadnezzar did. But we act self-sufficiently because we're strong, because we're smart, because success makes us feel like we can do it on our own. We've got ourselves here. We can do this. There's an interesting thing I wanted to show you on video, but I couldn't get permission, so I'm going to read it to you. It was, uh, it was actually um, a commentary uh, Governor Huckabee did while he was an anchor on Fox News the day after Sandy Hook uh, shootings a few years ago. And uh, please understand, I, I'm not making by reading this any kind of an endorsement either way of him since I know he's a presidential candidate. Would you just listen to what he said? Because I think he says some really profound stuff. This is what he said. He said, maybe it is to express our collective shock when we say we're trying to make sense of the, of the horrific shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School, but we're not going to make sense of it. Not from that which is totally disconnected from the cognitive capacity of any rational human being. Says the governor of Connecticut got it right when he said, evil has visited this community and President Obama in an emotional statement from the White House spoke more as a parent than as a politician and he quoted from the Bible to bring comfort to the nations. And churches were filled in Newtown, Connecticut last night as candlelight vigils were held to grieve the 27 innocent people killed and the countless lives of those shattered by the few crazed seconds of carnage. He goes on to say, on Friday, Neil Cavuto asked me, Where was God in all of this? And I said that for 50 years we have systematically attempted to remove God from our schools, our public activities, but then the moment we have a calamity, we wonder where he is. He says, goes on to say, well, the predictable left lit up the airwaves and blogosphere with a vile and vicious reaction and jumped to the conclusion that I said if we had prayer in school, the shooting wouldn't have happened. He goes on, I said nothing of the sort. It's far more than just taking prayer or a Bible reading out of the schools. It's the fact that people sue a city so they don't have to be confronted with a major manger scene or a Christmas carol. It's lawsuits that are filed to remove a cross that is a memorial to fallen soldiers who believed in that cross. It's lawsuits that are, that are filed, uh, church, uh, or churches and businesses are told to surrender their values under the edict of government orders to provide tax-funded abortion pills. We carefully and intentionally stop saying things are sinful, and we call them disorders. We may even say they're normal. 
And we get to where we have to abandon bedrock moral truths. And then we ask, where is God? He goes on to say, well, as I see it, we've escorted him right out of our culture and we've marched him off the public square. And then we express our surprise that a culture without him actually reflects what it has become. As soon as the tragedy unfolded, he says, I think God did show up. He showed up in the lives of the teachers who put their lives between a gunman and their students. He showed up in the policemen who rushed into the school not knowing if they would be met with a barrage of bullets. He showed up in the form of hugs and tears for children and parents and teachers who had lived through the slaughter. He showed up at the overflow church services where people lit candles and prayed. And he showed up at the White House where the president invoked his name and quoted from his book. And in a few days... Or weeks, he goes on to say, we'll probably ask God to excuse himself from view. And we will announce in our arrogant pride that we are now enlightened and educated. And we have evolved past the point of needing him. And somebody's going to suggest, pardon me, somebody's going to suggest that we pass a law to stop this kind of thing. He goes on to say, I might want to point out that we don't have to pass a new law. There is one that's been around for a while that works if we teach it and observe it. Thou shalt not kill. And he says, a little snarkily, he says, oh, there are about nine others. But to tell you about them would require bringing God back, and we know how unacceptable that might be. See, self-sufficient until something terrible happens outside of our control. Now, there's other, lots of other symptoms that, are, that get to the fact that we may be living self-sufficient even though we believe in God, even though we think we're relying on him. Let me just give you a couple of them. I'm sure there's more. And then we're going to spend the rest of the time talking about how do we live dependent upon God in the midst of success like Daniel so that we can have long-lasting influence. Self-sufficiency is bound up in the idea of control, right? We get that. When you find, so when you find yourself, for instance, giving of your money or your time, doesn't matter, or your talent, it doesn't matter, this is not a money issue, this is about anything in your life. When you find yourself giving, and it's primarily focused on giving for return on investment, meaning I choose to give only to what I feel the growth and impact will be when it's uh, acceptable to my successful business parameters of what I expect for in my area of life. Then you may very well be self-sufficient. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Jesus himself talks a ton about through parables and stories about the idea of growth and expected return. So let's not talk about that. I mean, we here at Quest, we measure growth. In personal growth, we measure it in numbers. We probably measure it more deeply and more thoroughly than 95% of churches in America. So I'm not making a point about that. Growth is important. But the issue is your control versus God's control. The Bible teaches us that we're to give the first fruits of our life, the first and the best, 10%, back to his mission as a starting point. That's what the Bible teaches. It's, it's not really even debatable. It's what the Bible teaches. And it's the idea that we sow in obedience to God, and God brings the growth. I mean, if you sowed into Abraham's life or Jeremiah's life, your growth 
will be different. If you sow into a poverty-stricken culture where everybody is really hungry for change, your growth is going to be different if you, than if you sow into a very wealthy culture that God is trying to reach. Growth is up to God. It's the issue that we are to respond with our time, our talent, our money, and let God bring the growth. Our role is to be obedient to that. Self-sufficiency also shows up in another symptom. It shows up in the generosity numbers of success around us. And we've talked about this before, the fact that the more we make in money and in success, typically the less generous we become. It shows up in the numbers even in our community. The New Albany 4305 zip code gives is less generous than the 43081 zip code. And both of those are far less generous than a poor zip code two, three, four miles away from us right here. It shows up around us. The generosity actually goes down with success because we become more self-sufficient, more self-focused. And part of our calling as quest is to invite and to challenge our communities by living out an example of radical generosity in every aspect of our life, in our kindness, in our time, in our money, in such a way that we invite and challenge our community to grow in generosity instead of being self-sufficient and feeling entitled to the enjoyment and contentedness of their wealth. Jesus actually tells a similar story to the one we see in Nebuchadnezzar in Luke 12. And it's actually by theologians referred to oftentimes as the parable of the rich fool. Jesus tells it like this. He says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, drink, and be merry. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like Nebuchadnezzar? I was in my palace, contented and prosperous. And then Jesus goes on and says, But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And Jesus finishes by saying this, This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. And that's the first key to being God-dependent and having deep, lasting success in your life is learning to live life rich toward God as a priority for everything about your life, not just money, but time, your emotion, your thoughts. It's this whole life investment being rich toward God. And it goes even to the idea of trusting in our own abilities rather than God's abilities and giving our abilities to him. You see, when success happens, we begin to believe our own press. We, We think we're so good at things and we're so confident we get noticed by people who respect us and we get these accolades and and we believe that we did it. We believe that we worked harder and we focused harder and we were smarter about what we did. And frankly, that's just not always true, is it? It's just not always true. Daniel was where he was in influence because that's where God designed him to be in relationship with people. I've seen people of equal ability and equal knowledge with the, in the same profession, one with significantly vastly more, vast, I'm not saying that well, a lot more success, right? We got that down? Much, much more prosperous in what they did. 
And I got to tell you, they probably got there at least partially because they were actually more secure than the person who, insecure than the person who wasn't because they were so driven to sacrifice because they needed the accolades so much. It was the only way they could feel good about themselves and not be self-critical and not be depressed. And the person who actually made less was more secure and actually had a happier life. But even that aside, in the end, Different people are put in different situations because of their call to influence in those settings. And God gives wealth to some people to influence those who are wealthy and to use their wealth to raise other people up as well and bless other people in need. And yet, it's easy for us to act like the success is all our own talent. It happens in church and ministry as well. It's happened to me in the past. I remember the first church, full-time church ministry I was in. It went from 250 to 1,200, putting us in the top half of 1% of church sizes in the nation. And it brought a lot of positive accolades my direction from people outside and others. And I and a lot of the staff did not handle it well. Frankly, we became full of ourselves overly confident in our own abilities instead of taking it for what it was. It was God's joy and pleasure to do his work through us. It had very little to do with who we are in particular. And here's the deal. When Quest or any church grows, we will all face this temptation. In fact, for those of you who've been here a long time, eight years ago when the massive decline hit, this was an issue. Dealing with success poorly. And it was still an issue that we had to deal with the first two years I was here, dealing with success poorly. It became all about the it factor, all about me and how good I was and how attractive I was as a communicator or whatever in the past. And that's what it was. And you may find yourself saying, if that becomes you, and even in church, not not maybe you're not up here, but maybe you're inviting your friends, you may find yourself saying, um, you know, I think you should come to my church because we do this better. This other church doesn't do this really well. They don't treat people well enough, or they don't do the music well enough. Or do, and we start violating our commitment to honoring others and our belief that that's what we should do by trying to do this kind of predatory invitation instead of blessing others and just asking people to join in what God's doing. But so often... We go through this time and we still struggle with, I did this, I did this, and I worked harder, and, and, and I made it, and the choice is up to me. And, and, and what we're actually saying then is, is, I made this, I paid the price, and you didn't. And if you make these same choices, you can have the American dream, and you can have this as well. And what we're implicitly saying is, if you don't have that dream, then you didn't make the choice. Now, I don't want to diminish the role of learning to be wise as a leader and growing as a leader, and I don't want to diminish the role of choices in our life. But the bigger picture, the bigger picture for all of us is that God directs our path, and he directs our path into the relationships of the people we are called to influence. And the biggest choice we have, the one true, really big choice we have, is to either live life self-sufficient or God-dependent. How do we remain God-dependent, powerfully influential over the long term, and face success? 
There's a friend of mine who's pastoring a large growing church doing really well. So, so happy for him. And when, in the past, uh, when we spent a lot of time together, he used to, uh, receive compliments and, and when he was honored, he would, he would just kind of receive it with this kind of deflection. He'd put his eyes down and he'd just deflect it. He'd say, well, no, that's not me. This is, that's God. It's just not me. You can't, no, I can't receive that. It's just God, you know, and it's, it's one of those kind of, this forced sense of humility, this, it was sincere in his pursuit of faith, but it was forced and it was awkward and it was really hard to give this guy a compliment. That's not what we're talking about in remaining dependent on God. Yet I still catch myself once in a while doing that. And I actually hear some of you doing that every now and then when you get a compliment. You deflect it. You can't receive it. But the reality is staying dependent on God actually means we have to learn to receive the honor God wants us to have in an appropriate way. We talked about Genesis 12 a couple of weeks ago. Remember, it's the original promise to the people of Israel. It's a real, and that promise, the New Testament says, applies to each and every one of us in the room who follows Jesus. And that promise could be easily summarized in Genesis 12 by God saying to us, I will bless you and make you a blessing. But when we look at the longer passage, it actually says this in Genesis 12, verse 2. It says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Isn't that tough to receive? I will make your name great. God wants to give you honor that you will use for his purpose. And unless you're willing to receive that honor and receive that attention, you will undermine and weaken his purpose for making you influential in the first place. In other words, he wants you to own that honor, that position of honor that he gives you. If he's made you the CEO, then he need to own the fact that he's given you a platform to speak into other people's lives and make decisions that can bring great blessing for him, and you need to own that. If he's made you the knowledge expert in a technical field, then you need to understand that God has given you that honor to be used for his influence in a positive way. If he's given you the honor that it's all, you're the, you're the one that all the friends come to over coffee and, and bear their souls and are willing to talk to you honestly and look to you for help and prayer, then you need to receive that honor. You need to learn to like coffee. I can't do that one because I don't like coffee, right? But you need to learn to receive that honor of trust that they give you. You need to see the honor as God's gift of loving influence and give praise to God for that honor. You see, Daniel saw the honor God had given him all throughout his life, and whether he was moving to the top of the ladder or whether he was going back down. Because if you've read the book of Daniel, you'll notice Daniel goes up and down big time on this ladder of success through all the four different kings he served, the two different, basically one of them was overthrown, so it's two different empires he serves under. He's going up the ladder sometimes in affirmation, and sometimes he's being opposed, and sometimes he's rising on the ladder, and sometimes he has flat out fallen off the ladder. And yet, it didn't greatly impact him because he learned to give praise to God knowing who God had called him to be and he received the honor of that when he did it and it kept him from going into the dumps of depression when the ups and downs happen in life. If God gives you honor with a difficult person, do you see it as honor? If he gives you influence, think about a difficult relationship or a situation in your life. 
It's so easy to go into those situations where, where it's difficult and, and even if you have influence with a, with a boss who's difficult or something, they still make your life miserable sometimes. It's so easy to go into some of those situations and take that burden on of that difficulty and walk away going, oh, I have to put up with this crud and how can I carry this weight and what's life all about? But you could also go into that same situation going, God, you've given me the honor of having influence with this person. Help me to steward that well and make a difference so this person's life can be changed. And Lord, help me to even moderate the difficulty of this person to protect all the people around me. And you can see that as difficulty and walk away with a burden, or you can see it as an honor that God wants to bless you with strength and make a difference through your life with. See, depending on your focus, the same meeting can cause you to go home depressed with a burden carrying the problem, or you can go home rejoicing that God allowed you to have the honor of being influential in that moment. What perspective dominates your life in the way you respond to the difficult people and the difficult situations around you? Is it the burden, oh crud, or is it thank you for the honor? Thank you for the honor of being here. See, God wants us to live in the latter. He created us in His image, and He loves it when that image that He created, that purpose He created us for, receives honor. It's like God delights in you being honored. It's like a father delighting over a child receiving honor. In fact, God even says that He will honor you. He says, I will exalt the humble. If we're humble and steward this success well, He will exalt us. And humility is not self-deprecating, deflecting the honor. It's not denying any accolades of honor. It's not seeing ourselves as worthless, no-good sinners. I mean, the reality is we are sinners. But when we stop by focusing on the sin, we don't see the creation, the good creation He created us to be. We don't see us being created in His image. And, and he doesn't see, we don't see how He's redeeming that strength and power in us. And when we don't see that, we only see the sin and how worthless we are. We make humility into something that's demeaning. It's our way of beating ourselves up to make us feel like what we think we deserve to feel like. But that's not humility. Humility is seeing ourselves the way God sees us. And God doesn't start by looking at us as sin. He starts by looking at us as the pinnacle of his creation, as being created in his image, as being created originally very good, as being created to have dominion over the earth, as being created special, each and every one of us. And certainly sin has damaged us, but God doesn't want us to start at that point of sin, but who he created with, created us to be, especially since the fact that he's already paid the price for that sin and offered complete redemption. Why does he want us to focus on something he's already taken care of in us? Humility is seeing ourselves the way God wants, God sees us and God wants us to find joy and wants us to find peace in who he's made us to be, not to diminish the joy of that honor. And the way we revel in honor without becoming prideful or self-sufficient is to have a rich praise life to God, that we praise him all throughout the day, that we treat even those difficult moments as an honor because he's put us there and he's empowered us to be there. Humility doesn't mean when someone gives you a compliment, we say it's all God and none of me. It was you operating. It was the way God made you and empowered you to be in that moment. It was you. Receive the honor. 
and instead just turn to God and have a big smile, even if it's just on the inside, enjoying the fact that His Holy Spirit, who's promised to give us, is inside you, rejoicing with you that you created that moment to be something where He had fun watching you be honored and made a difference for Him. Recognize God's delight in making your name, His child's name, great. Now, certainly, there are times to say, I don't have this ability. We saw that in Daniel a couple weeks ago, but it doesn't mean we're self-deprecating. I mean, if we look at where we talked a couple weeks ago in Daniel 2, where Daniel goes up and says to the king, you've asked us to do something that is absolutely impossible for any human being, and I cannot do this, but my God reveals mysteries, and I will tell you what you need to know. See, there's no self-deprecating in that. There's proper order But there's actually also this huge confidence in him saying, I'm called to this position to interpret your dreams. That's one of the ways God has gifted me. And I'm here to tell you God will be faithful to my connection with him to make that happen. So here, King, this is what you need to know, right? We can own God's gifts as God's gifts and speak for him and receive honor without being self-deprecating. Humility is also living a life so satisfied with God's plan and the way God created us that we have no need to compete or compare with others. Put that another way, it's learning to live life not as competitive in comparison, but as obedient. You see, Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy because he believes he's all that. He just believes I'm everything in comparison to each other. And he builds this 90-foot statue of gold, which many, many theologians believe was actually a statue of him. He's, he's pretty full of himself, right? Self-sufficiency forces us to measure ourselves by others in order to determine our value. God dependency teaches us to be competitive only from the perspective of bringing out the best in us and the best in others, not by comparison. Self-sufficiency makes us do business in a predatory way in order to feel good and successful about ourselves. We have to win and we have to put the others out of business. We have to dominate this market share. But God dependency gives us the ability to wish for blessing on our competitors while enjoying doing our best to follow God and serve people really well. Might I suggest since it's the season that maybe we ought to think about this at Thanksgiving football time? Just a thought. That might be pushing it too far, right? That might be pushing it too far. No, Paul actually talks about how this competitiveness becomes part of our faith even and how we approach our faith in 1 Corinthians 4. He's talking about himself and Apollos and how there's a division over who the people should follow. And he says in verse 7, he says this, For who makes you different from anyone else? What did you have that you did not receive? And what he's in context implying there, you received everything from God. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Paul is saying, why are you so focused on who gives you the greatest opportunity for honor and influence by following them? See, competitiveness in business and church and friendship and trying to get our kids the right breaks in life, we pursue trying to associate ourselves with great men and great women who we think can give us the best leg up instead of staying focused on where God has called us as the first question. 
This happens in church. We talked about it a little bit earlier. We try to go after the hot teacher. We compare our, our preacher to this really great mega preacher out there. Or we compare our worship to the hottest worship in town. And we make our decisions a lot of times for who, where we're going to go by what we like the best and who's the, the rising star. See, we need to have, be associated with this rising star because it makes us feel good about ourselves. And when this happened, it makes us talk like like we talked about earlier, trying to sell people to come to our church by telling them how bad theirs is and how much better ours is, and we violate that honor. But the question that Paul's asking us is, why are you making decisions based on perceived competitive advantage to getting ahead in your influence in your faith or your life rather than remaining God-dependent? We do it in our work, right? We get so often frustrated with where we're wanting and we want to go attach ourselves to this rising star over here or this other business who's really great and, and that makes us even more frustrated dealing with our difficult setting. And, and, and the fact of the matter is God very, mel, very well may want you to have that relationship with that person. He very well may want you to go to that place. But what I'm talking about here is the difference between God dependence and obedience to God first and being driven by being enamored with someone else and thinking they can make my life better by attaching myself to them. Finally, staying God-dependent instead of becoming self-sufficient is significantly based in our habits. And we're just going to go through this really quick because we've talked about these habits in the last two series a lot. Daniel had this habit of prayer. He would pray three times, we see in one chapter of the Bible. It talks about his regular habit of praying three times one, uh, each day. And he also had three times a day where he ate different than everybody else to remind himself of who he was serving and whose he was. Six times every single day he had these little moments set aside, probably not very long, just these little moments where he turned to God and reminded himself who he was dependent on. We've been encouraging over the summer us all trying to grow in a sense of prayer. And i got to tell you, more prayer is happening. But I want to continue to push you and encourage you, get these habits of prayer in your life and let God speak to you and allow yourself to learn to pray for others and allow yourself to risk raising your hand to be prayed for by others. There's more prayer happening, and it's no coincidence that we're having more divine encounters as a result. There is a correlation between turning towards God and God turning towards us, right? Habits of praise is the other habits of honoring God as the one with the power. We talked about that several weeks ago. He's the one with the power, not your difficult boss, not the system you're working in. That doesn't have the power. God has the power, so we honor him for that. We talked last week about habits of honoring others and choosing to focus on God's design and his intent in other people around us more than focusing on the annoying weaknesses and the sin in their life and speaking to those God-intended good things about them and being honoring people, a habit of honoring others. And there's a habit of honoring God's word as well. You see, in our insanity, being a part of the most pro- one of the most prosperous communities and one of the most prosperous nations, we easily fall prey to thinking we know better than what the Bible says. I mean, the Bible's great, but we're a progressive generation. We've advanced. We're way beyond the archaic times of ancient times and the societies and their level of thinking. We know more and we don't need the God explanations to teach us what's right and wrong, what's healthy and unhealthy, what's good for us and what's not good for us, what's healthy relationship and what's not healthy relationship. So uh, the further we get away from God and our culture, the more we rely on our own selves, the, the more insanity we see. 
So we see more violence and we see more disregard for human life going on and we see more disdain for authority and lack of respect and lack of restraint and rioting that happens way out of proportion to the issues and, and not even attached to truth a lot of times. And we see political systems that are largely broken because of polarization of relationships and no one can work together to get anything substantive done. And the fact of the matter is, We'll face the same problems as long as this continues 25 years from now that we're facing today, only they'll be more intense and they're the same problems we faced in in the 1980s as well. Now, I'm not a doom and gloom guy. I don't hear that from that. God's patience and God's ability to turn things around is far greater than any of us can think or imagine. Yet the reality is our culture is showing more and more signs of a prosperous self-sufficiency and a lack of dependence on God. In Daniel 4, Daniel makes an invitation to the king after he interprets the dream to him. And it's an, interpre- it's an invitation to any one of us. In verse 27, it says, Therefore, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, by being generous, by being honoring, by using your blessing to bless others, by using your blessing to raise others up. And, he says, then it may turn out that your prosperity will continue. See, unless we learn to be people of strength and honor instead of reacting in our defensiveness and our weakness, unless we learn to stand out in a polarized world by bridging relationships and being kind and honoring even of people who are difficult and even evil people, trying to be honoring and kind to them and showing God's power through prayer so he shows up, and unless we learn to be the most generous people on the planet with our, with our finances, with our kindness, with our time, with our talent, the slide of our culture into contented self-sufficiency and sin and insanity will continue and polarization will get worse in our culture. But this I know. God wants us here right now in our community to make a difference, to lead the way in knowing how to handle God's blessing and God's success for the long term, to pray for the peace and prosperity of our city, to lead our community in examples of friendship and honor and examples of financial generosity that, that, that speak loudly to our community and invite them all into the way God designed us all to live, to enjoy the honor he gives us and to enjoy being the blessing and making deep impact in life for every single one of us that he intends. So where is the Holy Spirit speaking to you today? Where's the Holy Spirit speaking to you about, yeah, I'm, I'm living, believing in God, but I'm acting self-sufficiently instead of God-dependent. I want to invite you to simply, as we continue to worship, to repent of that, to thank Him and worship Him, and ask Him, what habits do I need to put back in my life to make sure I keep dependent on you? Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would come right now. You've been here the whole time, but I ask that you come and speak very, very specifically to each one of our hearts right now. Lord, that you would draw us into this radical generosity, this honoring, this kind of relationship above differences, this, this vision and power that you want us to live by where we receive the honor you've given us and where we bestow the honor you intend to give to others upon them and they would know the joy of that and we would know the joy of that and we would know your power working through us in tremendous ways to be a blessing. Be with us as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thank you.